and welcome to the Empathy Mining Podcast. I hope uh, that you're going to stay with us today because I think today's topic is going to be very, very interesting. Um, we're going to talk about things that white folks like myself and my guest don't often like to talk about. In fact, that is sort of the center of a brand new word or phrase that's been entered into the Oxford Dictionary, white fragility. So our topic today, white privilege, white fragility, is going to be uh, coming to you from two white guys, myself and my best buddy from way back, a lifetime friend, Andy Ferris. The two of us grew up together in a small town of about 6,000 people in Indiana. And we were basically as lily white a town as you could imagine. And therefore, our existence was white. Our culture, white. We were immersed. And what that really means is, and we'll discuss this more later, we didn't think about race. We, we were unaware of most of what was going on in other parts of the world where race was concerned. So that's awfully comfortable, right, for people like us, my, myself and my, my buddies who are going to be our, our guests to get today. So um, we're going to dive into that because I now live in a very diverse community in a larger a large city in Indianapolis. My friend Andy uh, lives in Las Vegas. He's lived in Los Angeles and Orlando and different places. Uh, and Andy married a black woman. And he has a teenage mixed-race son. So we're basically going to kind of take it from our childhoods and what we grew up in uh, into our adult lives and in the, the present and our experiences um, with race that we experience now. Andy's going to have a completely different experience from me as his wife and his son have dealt with, you know, overt and more often probably subtle racism. Uh, so we're going to get into that and talk about what white privilege actually is and is not. Maybe talk about this, this new concept of white fragility. So stay with us. I think it's going to be a great, great discussion. Before we get there, let's have a word from our sponsor and then I'm going to play a song that I wrote on this topic to lead into our discussion with our guest. Stay with us. Tranquility 
Okay, so welcome back to the podcast. That song was one that I wrote. Based upon similar experience to what I was talking about uh, before the commercial break, and the fact you know that so many of the towns that uh, the one that we grew up in, Andy and myself, and all the towns around us, basically the smaller towns were all white. We had one larger town nearby that that uh, was much more diverse, and and uh, but the the small towns were all just about like our town, and. Some of them, including, I think, even though we didn't know it at the time, including our town, had the reputation, at least at one point, of being um, these sundown towns where uh, black people wouldn't want to be coming through after dark. Uh, and that was part of the theme that I was thinking about when I wrote that song. And uh, also, I'd just seen the Green Book uh, not too too long before that. And the Green Book... Uh, if you hadn't seen it, it was about that uh, fact that there was the, the Green Book is actually a book called the Negro Traveler's Guide, travel guide, and black people from uh, the 1930s all the way up to the year of my birth, 1967, this guide was published so that black people traveling around the country could find safe places to stay and eat and uh, and all that which blows my mind, and it's part of what I wanted to talk about today, too, is the fact that uh, when you think about racism and things, and, just, and a lot of times more conservative people will say, uh, just get over it. Slavery ended 150 years ago. You keep bringing this up, and, and that, that's, that's what's keeping racism alive. Well, <laughs> this, this guidebook had to be published up to the year I was born, and I'm not an old man, uh, so get over it. It didn't, never went away. Get over what? It's not done. So that's, that's the point here today. So that's where I'm going to bring Andy in. Andy, can you hear me here? I certainly can, Shane. Good to be with you again. All right. Have I set this thing up decently now that we can talk about this? Yeah. Okay. Just uh, speak up since you're coming through a speaker here, and I'm in Indianapolis, and you're in Las Vegas, and I think this one's going to sound pretty good if we can pull this off. So let's just, I'm just, you heard what I had to say with the introduction and all that. What's your thoughts before we get started here? What, what do you want to say to start us off? Well, I think, you know, talking about sundown towns and that whole policy of, of African-Americans needing some type of guidebook to, to make their way around so they know what towns they can stop in. The fact that we knew nothing about that and, and it was going on where we live, I mean, that's, that's one of the best examples of what, what white privilege looks like, is the fact that we didn't even have to think about it. It exactly. was never brought to our attention. Exactly. Uh, but it, it, it was definitely going on. Hey, um, just let me jump in so, here. One of the most, I've read quite a bit on, on sundown towns in Indiana, where we grew up, uh, as sort of a research when I wrote the song and stuff. We grew up seven miles from one of the more notorious ones. I'm not going to name it, but I think you know which one I'm right. talking about. Uh, yes. It's, it rhymes with Smellwood. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to jump in there. that we were uh, that, and, and we've talked about this a little bit. We're, we very well could have been living in one ourselves. I, I, oh, I, sure. I have a feeling we probably were. 
So, anyway, go back, go on. I, I loved what you were doing there with your opening there. So, well, let me give you a little story. Um, my family moved to to Indiana back in 1970. We moved down from Michigan, and my parents were looking for a home. They had a realtor that was showing them around. Um, they had seen a few houses. They went into the office one day, and they were told the realtor has left town. And the reason the realtor left town was because they had shown a house to a black family. And soon after they, show, they had shown the house to a black family, one of their kids was beaten up and put into the hospital. And the realtor was told, if you keep doing this, you'll be next and your wife will be next after that. And that realtor and his family packed up and left. And that was our introduction to the town that we grew up in. So the realtor's family being run out of town because they were showing a house to a black man. The realtor, I, I'm assuming, was white, and his family was white. Yeah. And the little right. kid, his child that got beaten up was, was white, and they were beaten up and run out of town simply because they dared show a house in that town to a black family, right? That's, that's correct. And so we knew that going in. But, you know... It's funny how when something like that happens, and I didn't find out, I, I was four at the time, so I didn't know what was going on at the time, but it's the story I heard later from my parents. And, you know, it's one of those things that as a white person, you move into a town and that happens, there's probably a lot of white people that think, well, good, I don't want any black people in my town. And even if you don't think that, even if you think, well, that's horrible, then guess what, what you know, happens next? Well, nothing, because you're not affected. You know, we weren't affected. So it's easy as a white family to say, oh, that's horrible what happened to him. Anyway, you have any other houses you can show us? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy to move on from something like that. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, I don't know why that this just popped into my head, but it did. It's, it's like um, the N-word is such a powerful word. Uh, that we're all scared to death of it, obviously. But I've had this discussion with different people over the years. There is no N-word for white people. There is, there, nothing, is not. there is nothing you could call me that's going to have a devastating effect on me. I'm just going to be like, oh, well, whatever. And just like your parents said, oh, well, that's, that's terrible. Where's the next house you can show me? That, right. That's white privilege. Exactly. You can, it doesn't affect me, so I'm okay, and I can move on, and actually, I don't even have to think about it past this moment. You can call me what, whatever the... They've tried a lot of words to get to white people over the years. None of them worked. Why? Because we were never in a position where words had power over us. Right. We were never enslaved. We exactly. were never the ones that were, that were held down, and we weren't taken from our... our home countries we weren't shackled and put on ships none of that happened to us right so we don't have historical reference to, to draw back on so um what do you say to the white person who brings up the very valid point that hey i've i've had uh racism against me i've been beaten up by kids in school because I was the only white kid or whatever like that. What do you, how do you explain the difference that, that does, that's not really, that doesn't have anything to do with white privilege. Do, do you understand right. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. There are situations where white people 
sometimes get into a, a, a bad spot because they're white. Yes, that happens. Obviously, it happens. So, but what's the difference? How, how would you uh, answer that criticism of this whole white privilege thing that a lot of people think doesn't even exist? Right. Well, I think, you know, a lot of times when some white people hear the term white privilege, they assume it means something that it doesn't. You know, they assume it means that white people have it easy and black people and other people of color have it tough. Yes. Much tougher. And that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you haven't worked hard in your life. It doesn't mean you haven't had struggles. It doesn't mean you haven't had obstacles put in your way. But what it means is that on the whole, that any struggle you've had or any obstacles that have been put in your way are less than the obstacles and struggles that are put in the way of, of black people or, you know, Hispanic people. Those, the, the, the struggles and the obstacles in their way are worse. And it's because of so many different things that white people never even have to consider, you know, just like looking for a house. Or, you know, when I go in for a job interview, I never have this sense of, well, let's see, are they going to discount me right off the bat? Or are they going to actually listen to me and give me a fair shot at this job? You know, I ne I've never even thought of that. It's never been a part of my consideration. I've always just assumed, well, I'm going to get treated fairly, and either I get the job or I don't. And it'll be because of they either like me or don't. It's right. never been because... I'm white, and they're not going to like me. I've never had to even consider that. Right, and... and uh, we, uh, when I say we, I mean white people in general in this country, um, even if we've had a, a really rough time of it, even if we've had a really crappy life and everything's been against us as far as trying to get a leg up and, and have some success, we can clean ourselves up, look nice, go into a place, and we don't carry a skin color in with us. Do you know what I mean? Right. That, oh, yeah. That is, that is, the, that is the difference. And, and it doesn't always come into play, but, but it does often enough that it's still a problem in this country where just because of the color of your skin, you walk into a place, there's an automatic strike or two in your, in, against you. And right. uh, even, even in shopping situations you know they're going to take a right. longer look at you because of the color of your skin and keep a suspicious eye on you and you hear about that kind of thing all the time if you if you know any black people right yeah it, i think what happens is that you know some white people want to take that term personally and it's not a, a term to take personally it's a term to realize that it's a term that applies to society as a whole and when you try to take it personally, then it becomes a, an attack on you as a white person. And that's not what that term is. It's not an attack on you. It's just a recognition that it is harder for other people solely based on their skin color. Yes. And I think once you can remove that personal attack on yourself, it's easier to look at what that term means for what it actually is. Yeah. I, I wrote an article about my... Uh... <clears throat> road to discovering what white privilege meant to me and a line I wrote in that article that seemed to resonate with people is not being cognizant of your white privilege is white privilege 
Exactly. I remember that. So that's it. Yeah. That's the biggest um, indicator of whether you're living in a world with white privilege. Right. If you've never had to consider it. Yes. So here's another thing I wanted to bring up um, that kind of plays right into that. As a school teacher in a diverse school, I see uh, the black kids. I see the Latino, Hispanic kids. And a big part of their... Um, uh, what do I want to say? A big part of the the public persona that they put out there for other kids and people to see revolves around their race. Uh, they're, they, they are often hyper aware of even different shades of color among blacks or you hear them say light skinned and or whatever like that um right talk about that a little bit that i i my my opinion on that is that they are really searching to find power within within their own um skin basically and they're they're trying to put it out there publicly that I, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say there, but but talk about that phenomenon of because the the counterpoint to that is ninety nine point nine percent of the time of my of my entire existence, I've never given a second thought that the fact that I'm white. Right. Do you know what I mean? And 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 a lot of the kids I see are talking about their skin color just about every day. And it, it just it every time it makes it really dawns on me that I never do that. Because I don't have to. Getting right. Out. So, what what do you think about that? I mean, well, I think do you think like your your wife and your son? Do you think that they? How how do you think they would respond to that? Well, I think that you know just the, the idea that any any situation you walk into, there is an immediate judgment made based on what you look like. And for some people, if you're not a white person, they're going to look at you in a very negative way just right off the bat. Um, and I think there's a lot of an, an attempt to gain some power, like you were saying, behind, you know, the whole black power movement was to give this idea that, you know, we, we are powerful. We are just as strong. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to kowtow to white people just because they're white. You know, it's, it's Trying to empower yourself is a big part of life. And when you don't have to empower the fact that you're white, that that's built into society, it's easy to, to not ever think about it. But when you're the person that's the underdog, you're the person that's being oppressed, you're doing whatever you can to turn that around into a positive for you. Thank you. That's, and if, that's what I was trying yeah. to say, and you said it better. <laughs> yes. Go on. If so you I see that. Yeah, I mean, I see that. And, and I know, you know, within the black community, there is, you know, the levels of there's they talk about, you know, lighter skin and dark skin and things like that. And I think some of that is actually just a, a conditioned response to being treated differently their whole life. Right. So, you know, we're it's kind of a human nature thing that when you're being stepped on, you step on the person below you. Right. Or who you, who you perceive as below you. And that that's and historically so some of that. Historically, that was a huge, huge thing with freed slaves. Uh, it was a it was a um, seen as a real 
leg up if you were light-skinned, and, and many times they actually tried to pass in society as white if they had light enough skin. So I think it goes even back to the, the days of slavery, this, this levels of skin tone and, and the right. advantages that it might bring you if you weren't as dark as, as the other person. Exactly. Yeah, so you're right. It goes way back. I mean, these thoughts, I mean, just the, the thoughts of white privilege and the thoughts of, you know, white supremacy, yeah, they go back, it goes back hundreds of years to the founding of our country and before. So it's not it's not a new phenomenon. It's one of these things that's being passed on sometimes unconsciously from generation to generation. You know, it's what we see on TV. It's what we see reflected in the evening news. You know, when you see reports that, you know, the number, the percentage of, you know, people that are, that are caught for certain crimes, the percentage of blacks is, is low, but the percentage of faces we see on TV misrepresents that. You know, we think we're seeing more than we actually are. And how much of that is conscious by those putting out the news, I don't know. But it certainly has been something that's been shown and proven. So, do you have any stories that you could share from your own family of some examples of things that they've come home and said, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today that are related to the color of their skin? Well, you know, I, just recently at my son's high school, there was um, a couple of boys that put up some Instagram postings that were very racially charged. Um, these boys took pictures of black kids in the hallway and in the lunchroom and talked about how they were going to shoot them up and they wanted to get rid of the N-words and all this was posted on Instagram. Um, you know, and so at my son's school, there was this threat. You know, the school was locked down, police came in, they, my son saw, you know, one of the boys handcuffed and being led out of the school with his backpack. Um, and as, if I was, you know, if I was married to a white woman, had a white child, it would be easy for me to go, wow, that's awful, and then move on and think, huh, well, I hope nothing happens, you know, what's on TV tonight? But being that my son is uh, not white, he, you know, obviously in the world, they would see him as a black kid, um, it stays with me. It's not something that I can let go. Right, and, and, and certainly him. Now, he, he has right. to get, the white kids go to that school once that died down and, and never get another thought. A lot. Well, I don't. I don't want to say the name of your child, in case you want to keep that private. But your ch your son has to go in, and that's on his mind. He knows that element exists in his school now. Right. Every day. And and, and you know, and something with him that I that I found very interesting. You know, he's fifteen. He's grown up <laughs> in the world that he's grown up in. He's kind of assumed that you know all these issues with race and sexuality and other things are kind of like our generation's problem. You know, those, you, you old people have to deal with that. This new generation coming up, we don't have to deal with that any, anymore. We've moved on past it. You know, we've had conversations where we've tried to give him the talk that we can, we can talk about that a little bit more later. But the talk about how you act as a, as a black person going through life has to be different. The way you interact with police, the way you interact with, you know, authority figures, and, you know, I think he's always kind of brushed that off. Like, you don't know my friend. You don't know what it's like now. We don't, we don't deal in that type of nonsense. And then something like this happens, 
And all of a sudden, he's hit right in the face with, oh, my God, this is happening at my school from people that I go to school with. One of the kids was in one of the classes. You know, this is not a thing that, that old people are still struggling with. This is going on for everybody. And, you know, and I, I hope it, it did some to open his eyes to the fact that, you know, the world hasn't changed. It certainly changed, no doubt, but it hasn't changed as much as you might want. Right. And as long as it's not 100% change, it only takes a small percent to, uh, you know, to go out and do something destructive. So, <clears throat> I, you know, my wife and I were like, this obviously is, this is horrible that it happened, but hopefully it kind of opens his eyes that he needs to be careful. You, know, you, you can't just go into situations assuming everybody accepts you for who you are. That's not the way it is. And, you know, my wife has had to deal with that her whole life. When she was younger, her, her mother moved her and her two brothers to uh, a wider area of town in Los Angeles. And she was called, you know, the N-word every day. She was, you know, like the only black kid in her class. She had to endure a lot of taunting and kids threatening to beat her up just because she was black. I mean, all that stuff. And when I hear those stories, it's like, I can't even imagine. I mean... That was never on our radar at all in the town we grew up in. Nobody was doing that. If you were being threatened to be beat up, it wasn't because of your skin color. It was for some other reason, <laughs> some random reason. Right. So, and I, and I was, and while this was going on with my son's high school, I was talking to a, another teacher at school, and we were discussing it. And she was a white lady. And, and at one point I said, well, you know, I was telling her my son goes there. I said, you know, I'm married to a black woman, so my son is black. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, like all of a sudden the story took on new meaning. <laughs> and, I, and I found that her response was interesting. It was like we were just discussing it kind of the two white people. Like, no, oh, that's too bad. That went on. And then when she realized it was that personal for me, it changed her level of interest in our conversation. She probably like, quickly, oh she was probably quickly scanning her short-term memory to make sure she didn't say something she shouldn't have said earlier. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we white, we white people like to open up to each other when sure. we nobody's around. <laughs> That's right. But I, I just found that it, that was just such a, a, a little microcosm of white privilege and the what, fact that she was concerned. It wasn't that she was concerned, but it wasn't personal for her. And she was able to get, she was going to walk away from our conversation and probably not think about it again. But all of a sudden it became, oh, his son is black in that school where blacks are being targeted. Now it, and now it means a little more. Right. Now it hits a little closer to home. And, you know, that's one of those instances where white people get to just kind of walk away from the situation. I assume you've seen the movie The Hate You Give? Uh, I have not. Oh, well, you should. Uh, but you were talking about the talk that uh, black kids need to get in, in our society today, about, especially about how to react with police and things like that. Right. Yeah, you should definitely see it. But that, that is, is the theme of that movie. Um, and uh, it's very good. Um, see, uh, what, what about this idea of white fragility? How do we deal with that? How do we keep... I mean, I understand it's not comfortable, and 
people like us who grew up in a, a town where we didn't we didn't deal with this they feel very much i think like you said defensive when the subject of racism comes up and they don't want to admit this white privilege and all of that um what's the answer there how from a from a person who lives with a family that's black and mixed race family what do you think they would say that they want to hear or they want they would what would they say to people like us who don't have that experience whatsoever in our past right well that's a, that's a difficult question to answer um i think part of it is recognizing our ignorance on on the way things work right you know recognize that as a society we aren't treated the same you know as, as a group it again to not personalize it into an attack on you as a white person but to expand that out to a systemic treatment of people in our society and to let go of this feeling of this personal persecution it's funny you know white people love to play this the persecution game as if they're being persecuted you know there there are polls on you know fox news where white people think that white people are actually treated worse than, you know, black people in this country now. They're they're actually discriminated against worse than black people. Yes, it's because yeah. it, there's this, it, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot a couple, the last few days. There's this idea among a certain segment of white society that feels like giving other people rights requires you losing yours. Right. And it just yeah. doesn't look, work that way. <laughs> it's It's such a frustrating thing. But yeah, they, that, that's yeah. what, when, when other people get rights, when we talk about that, it feels like persecution to them. Well, how does, exactly. yeah. Yeah, you're not losing rights, you're just allowing someone else, else to have the same rights you are. Yes. And why, and why does that trouble you so much? It, when, when you let why somebody they... else climb to a, a higher rung on the ladder, doesn't mean you've come down, but it, right. that's what some are, are feeling like. And, and in doing so, they're actually revealing the fact that they do have white privilege, even though they won't admit it. Yeah, that's true, because how, how could something be taken away from them if they didn't have their privilege to begin with? Exactly. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's like, so, so you admit there's white privilege. Right. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be losing anything. So what is it that you're losing? You're losing the privilege you have as a white person to interact in society and not have to worry about being you know, judged by the skin and the color of your skin. I mean, that's, that's what you're losing in your mind when they're, you know, they're actually not losing that, but in their mind they are. Right. And that's, that's the hard thing to break through with. And that's, you know, something that <clears throat> when I finally came to grips with that a long time ago, it was like, oh, I see, this isn't an attack on me. It's an attack on the system. It's an, an attack on how our country's been run historically. I get it. It's an attack on a system that I've been benefiting from without ever knowing it. Exactly, yeah. That's it. I mean, you didn't even know you were benefiting. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, tough, a difficult situation and conversation to have because of that. When someone takes it personally to begin with, it's kind of hard to talk them back down from that. You know, when we, get, when we take something personally, we, we tend to hold on to it. We don't want to let that go because it's us. You know, it's me. I don't want to give a, a part of myself away. 
But that's, I think once you crack that, you know, the facade of that, that it's you know, a personal thing towards you, it's, then now we can have the conversation about what we can do to fix it, what it actually looks like for people that look differently from you. Um, you know, like one example is, is the stop and frisk policies that have been put in place, you know, like in New York and Boston and some places. Now, I was looking at some stats that, you know, back in Boston, they did a study from 2007 to 2010 that, that with the stop and frisk policies, that 63% of the encounters between police and civilians were between police and, and African-Americans. But only 25% of the population in Boston is actually African-American. What is making up for that, that difference? You know, why are so many more people of color being stopped and frisked when studies have shown that, you know, as far as illegal drug use goes, everybody's pretty much the same. Every group pretty much uses drugs at the same amount. And yet we see a much higher percentage of the black community and Hispanic community being pulled over, being stopped and frisked, being arrested, being jailed, given jail time. You know, those are instances where as a white guy driving around town, in my car, you know, I, I never assume I'm going to be pulled over, ever. No. As long as I'm keeping the speed limit, I figure I'm good. I should never be pulled over. And or I've even never been pulled over in my life for no reason. The extra 10 mile an hour over the speed limit that all white people get. Oh, yeah. That's, we, we don't want to give that up. Full of things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I have black friends that have, you know, they've gotten pulled over. Many times for no reason, just you know, driving while black or walking down the street while black or any of those things that we do all the time and take for granted. I've never had the indignity of being pulled over, taken out of my car, frisked, handcuffed, whatever, for no reason. There, my most recent student teacher uh, earlier this year, um, he was telling me he was he's a black man, uh, very well spoken. Um, nothing he's there's nothing sinister looking or tough looking about him none of that yet he was telling me that uh he got pulled over in in Tennessee I believe it was and I can't remember the details of the the stop but it it went really badly for him and since that time, he has had a camera installed on the dashboard of his car to record any police stops that, that he's encountering. And this, is, this guy is the last person in the world that you would think a policeman would be scared of. Right, except for the color of his skin. Exactly. So, I mean, I, that, how, many, how many white people think about, I need a camera in my car in case I get pulled over? Right. Never even, never even consider it. And you're going to find someone that says, you know, I'm white. I've been pulled over for no reason and treated crappily by the cops. Okay. But, you know, it's because, you know, that's the exception proves the rule in that case. Like, right. Okay, maybe it happened to you once, you know. But if you talk to, you know, 100 white people, you may have, you know, a handful that have ever had that happen to them. Whereas if you, have, you know, talk to 100 black people, you're going to get a much higher percentage of people that are going to be able to say, I've been pulled over for absolutely no reason. Probably driving through a rich neighborhood. I'll bet that's probably approaching a hundred percent. Right, most likely. 
Yeah. And that's, you know, as a white person, you never, you don't even know that's going on. How would you know that's going on? If you're not involved in those situations, you don't have any black friends or, you know, your only black friends or some people you might work with. You don't know them personally to hear those type of stories. You just, you don't know that's going on. I never knew that that was a thing. Right. So, you know, as old, I started hearing stories from people. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> you just get pulled over for no reason? Yeah. Well, you must have been doing something, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't want to just, you don't want to let go of that notion that, wait a minute, you're telling me this happened for no reason? I don't think so. It's our, it's our white privilege to be shocked by that. Right, right. Yeah, it's in the you know fragility of it. That that just goes back to you know taking it personally and not looking at it as a whole, as as the bigger picture. So what what else have we not covered that you that you would like to throw in here? Anything? <clears throat> well, I, I mean, I think just to, to touch you know based on where we grew up again. Okay. Um, we always knew growing up that you know seven miles down the road was the, the headquarters of the KKK in Indiana. That's I think that was always kind of common knowledge, and and I remember back in 1978-79 when one of my older brothers was a senior in high school, the Klan marched through our downtown. Oh, I didn't so remember that. Yeah, so wow. that was a you know we went we actually went and watched it, and I'm and I'm wondering now because <laughs> I think back, why did we even go? Was because I don't remember my parents saying, we're going to go because we think this is wrong and we're going to protest, or we're going to go because we think it's a good thing. I mean, my parents were not overtly racist at all. Right. Um, I was lucky that way. But the fact is, as a family, they took us, and we were probably in fifth grade maybe at, at, at the time, sixth grade maybe, because my, when my older brother was a senior, something like that. And we went down, and they were handing out leaflets. I remember we took leaflets home that had incredibly racist cartoons and all kinds of things. And they walked right down the middle of our town. And I wonder, you know, how many of those guys behind those robes were people that I knew? Sure. Were, were baseball coaches or teachers or mayors of the town? or I mean, we don't know because they had hoods on. Right. But that went on, that went on in our town in the late 70s. Um, and it's just scary to think about to how close it was, how much of that was going on behind the scenes that as kids growing up in a town like that, you never consider. It never comes up. But it was rampant. I mean, it was going on. <laughs> and I look back now, like how many of my friends' dads were in that parade? You know, who, who was there? You know, <clears throat> you wish they would have taken their hoods off at some point so we could have seen who they were, but that's not how they roll. They don't want to do it that way. But... You know, we grew up in that situation where we just didn't have to consider it. And in the meantime, it was going on, going on around us, actively making sure that our town stayed lily white. Right. Without us knowing. Secret, secret guardians. Yeah, right. Watching out for us. Yeah. And then in, in an environment like that, you know, I think back to all the, the jokes that I heard and laughed at and jokes that I told and laughed at that I would, you know, I, I'm horrified at today. Right. But they just like jokes to me. I, I, I wasn't attaching those words to a person. It was a joke about those people. We didn't have any people to attach it to. <laughs> right, exactly. It wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles and I realized, wow, 
that gay joke doesn't go over as well when I'm working next to a guy who's gay and is now my friend. Right. Or, you know, that joke doesn't work out so well now that my supervisor's a, a black lady. Or, you know, that, <laughs> that Hispanic joke doesn't seem so funny now that, you know, one of my best friends is Hispanic. It's, you know, those aren't, those aren't things we should be doing. But I had to be faced with it. I, it had to be personal for me to realize, wait a minute, these aren't cool jokes. These aren't things that you joke about. These are real people. But until you move away from a situation like that, like what we grew up in, it's really hard, I think, to grasp that. It's, it's something you have to live just to know it intellectually isn't enough. You have to live with it. You have to know people. You have to get out in the community and realize we're all just the same. I mean, that was my biggest realization when I moved to Los Angeles and it was all of a sudden around all these different people from all over the world. It's like, and we laughed at the same jokes and the same stupid stuff was funny to us. You know, it's like, oh, we're all just the same. Right. You know, we get sad about the same things. We all have families. We all have kids that we worry about. It's, we're all the same, but, but that was never going to happen for me. And I wonder how long it might've taken had I just stayed in that town. Like what would my mindset be now? Had I never left our hometown? I don't know. I would hope that I would have been able to grow somewhat, even though I never got out into the world, but I really don't have any idea. And there's the bell. The what? Oh, I heard a bell in my sight. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about a song by Jason Isbell. Um, I'm looking up the lyrics to it. I might squeeze that song in at the end of the podcast here too because it's really good. It's called White Man's World. Uh, let's see here. Go ahead and keep talking. <laughs> Scratch. Scratch. <laughs> Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, we probably got some things wrong today in the way we talked about it. We probably got some, you know, didn't say things in, in the exact right way today. What did I say, and, Andy? What, what? Oh, well, we'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, and it's only because we still are not 100% immersed in that world. No. You know, we there's still things that is, as much as we want to empathize and, and try and understand... We can't. There's just no way. When I talk to my wife, you know, there's no way I can understand what it means for her to walk into a store or to, you know, if we're traveling somewhere and we're stopping at a little gas station in some podunk town somewhere, to realize that she may have some, you know, anxiety about what we're stepping into. I never have that. I've driven across country dozens of times and never once did I think, should I stop at this hotel? Should I stop at this gas station? Should I, you know, should we just keep going? This town looks a little too small, you know. It's never entered my mind. Right. But it's, you know, it's still easy for me to, to not think about it. And I do. There are times, most of the time, I'm not thinking about it, which is just part of that privilege that I had to be able to be allowed to do that. If it was in my face every day because my skin wasn't white, then I would not be able to do that. It would be something on me all the time. And it's the, you know, it's all those tiny indignities that happen day by day by day that wear people down that we don't have to deal with. Right. I, here, here is the, um, the verse that I was thinking about when you were talking about 
they'll the jokes, you know, the off color or or racially insensitive jokes when when we were kids and things like that. Uh, this is from the song "White Man's World" by Jason Isbell. It says, "I'm a white man looking in a black man's eye, wishing I'd never been one of the guys who pretended not to hear another white man's joke. Old times ain't forgotten." So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so true. It's you know to think it, had we had Facebook and cell phones and everything back then, I could record. You know, there there could be you know a video of me as a, a twelve year old telling a, a you know a racist joke, for sure. Right. You know, and it could have been saved forever. <laughs> right. And how fine would that be now to have to be faced with that? It's, you know, it's just, it's really sad. But I read, when I was in middle school, I read a book called Black Like Me. Right. My, my mom had read it, um, so I read it. And that was really the first time in my life that I started to get an inkling that things are much different for people with a different color skin than I have. And that, that opened my eyes a lot sure. as to what goes on and what people have to deal with. And, you know, I read it and then went on the rest of my, you know, my life there in Indiana. And and it became a part of my thinking, but it was never fully implemented into my thinking until I moved out of there. Right. I read that book, too, probably probably about the same time. Yeah? Yeah. Heavy book. So, anything else? I think we pretty much uh, covered it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for uh, being on again, and we'll do it again I on another topic. It's always a pleasure. Sorry. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I think I'm going to close this podcast with Jason Isbell's White Man's World. Uh, really good song to kind of close out our, our theme of white privilege today. So uh, um, thank you for listening. Enjoy this song, and join us next time on the Empathy Mining Podcast. I'm a white man living in a white man's world Under our roof is a baby girl I thought this world could be hers one day but her mama knew better I'm a white man living in a white man's town Wanna take a shot of cocaine and burn it down Mama wants to change that Nashville sound But they're never gonna let her
Into the earth with your mind. 